We're in Ezra chapter 4. Two Sundays ago, we began the book of Ezra with the first few verses of chapter 1, and then Wednesday night we covered chapters 1 through 3. This next Wednesday, we'll cover all of chapters 4, 5, and 6 as we look more at the story of Zerubbabel than we do at the story of Ezra. Ezra is going to come along himself in person in chapter 7 and then on through the rest of the book. So the book is kind of divided that way. First six chapters are about Zerubbabel, governor who becomes the governor of Judea, but he's of the line of Judah, one of the princes of Judah. And of course, Yeshua, the high priest at that time, which is ironic. Uh, maybe not so much so for that day and age, because Yeshua was just Joshua, a very common name, but Yeshua was the high priest as the people came back, just as Yeshua is our high priest. Jesus Christ. But this first half is about what Zerubbabel and Yeshua are doing. Let's take a look at this chapter 4 in verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we like you seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Asarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the, king, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. If you've seen that great epic movie, Chariots of Fire, you know something of the story of one of my personal heroes of the faith, Eric Little. Eric Little, that great Scotsman missionary runner, He was son of a famous Scottish missionary in the day, a name well known in Scotland, a man by the name of James Little. But Eric Little went beyond his father's fame. He ran and won the gold medal for the 400 meter relay or or 400 meter run in the 1924 Olympics. Then again, if you've seen the movie, you know that he refused to run on on Sunday. His scheduled event was the 100 meter, the, the shorter run, and he refused to run that because it was a Sunday and he wouldn't run. On Sunday, we we really lost something of that kind of of faith. But he wouldn't run on a Sunday, and so they gave him another option ultimately, and he ran the 400 meter, and he won the gold. But this man of faith, his story goes far beyond the movie. His story goes on to China, where he would be a missionary for 10 more years. Where in his mission work, ultimately, he was smuggling money and, and resources and Bibles to people in China at the time that Japan was really coming on in the world scene and oppressing China greatly. And Eric Little ended up in a Japanese internment camp there in World War II, where he died in 1945. His family wouldn't even find out about it for, I believe, six to eight months. And though he was a sports legend of Olympic history, he is more so a spiritual legend. He was a legend of the London Missionary Society, a legend among Christians and Scots the world over. Well, the movie recounts a conversation between Eric and his father. And if you watch the film, they're walking down the path after church on a Sunday and they're having this conversation. In real life, the scene was slightly different because it was a moment that impacted Eric Little's life greatly. 
It was a Sunday morning. And James Little was preaching a sermon that would stay with Eric the rest of his life. In fact, he later recalled that he could not take his eyes off his father, similar to my children, every week. (laughs) And he said that he realized, he recognized in what his father was preaching that this was the kind of man he wanted to be. This was the person he wanted to be. This is what his father said. It was a sermon entitled, The Kingdom of God is Not a Democracy. And James Little said there is no discussion, no deliberation, and no voting as to which way to go or which road to take. There is no low road, only the high one. One voice, one absolute ruler, one benevolent authoritarian demanding to be obeyed. And then he said these words, compromise is the language of the devil. Compromise is the language of the devil. Now the first time I heard that was in the movie. And it stuck to me. I've never forgotten that. And oftentimes I find myself coming back to that same place. Compromise is the language of the devil. Now I find this Sunday's study very timely. Oftentimes this happens as we're just studying through the Word. And I even shared this last week with a friend that I was a little uncertain about what I was talking about. And yet this is right where we are. And the more I study this and pour it over, the more I recognize with what's going on in the church and the world today that the Lord continues to convey a message to us. A message that is vital to our hearts, our faith, our life, our understanding. Compromise is the language of the devil. Compromise is the same as infiltration. It's where it's not it's not even you know, have you noticed that you can stand pretty strong in your faith when someone comes head to head with you? When someone calls you an absolute liar, well, man, that gets my back up. But it's different when someone comes along and says, yeah, I'll come and worship with you. Oh, I'd love to come to church with you. And after worship on a Sunday together, you go out to lunch and you sit down and the person starts to say, you know, your pastor had some good things to say, but, you know, I, I think some of the facts actually are a little different than what he was sharing. Oh, how do you mean? And the person gently and lovingly starts to explain how this really isn't truth, how it's some nice ideals and ideas, but that the truth is found in science, or the truth is found in our education, or the truth is found somewhere else. And it's hard to fight that. Because the person is being so kind. It's the language of compromise, and compromise is the language of the devil. Sometimes I fear in the church today that we're more comfortable with the language of the devil than we are with the language of faith. We would rather not offend. We would rather just kind of take in than stand for truth. Than say, no, no, no. You see, that's not true. And let me tell you why and what I believe. Oftentimes in our faith we don't do that because we don't really know what we believe. We love to sing to Jesus and we have some sense of the Bible, but what do we believe? What is the truth that we hold to? Well, again, we've covered the first three chapters of the book of Ezra midweek. And we saw the wonderful return of the exiles back to Jerusalem and the land of Israel to the point that now they come to this moment. A moment of compromise or standing for the truth. But before we get there, I want to back up a little bit and just share with you something in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 10. So look back a few verses. In the lead up to this, it tells us when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests stood in their apparel with the 
uh, with the trumpets and with the Levites and the sons of Asaph and the cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, and His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet, many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's household, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy for the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. This mixture, this combination of weeping and rejoicing, why? Why the combination? Well, we talked about this Wednesday, but I wanted you all to be aware of this. The young bucks caught the vision of a new day. <laughs> As often they do, the young people see what's new and what's relevant and what's current and what God is doing now. And they say, forget about what He was doing then. Look at what He's doing now. Let's run. Let's shout. Let's worship. Let's praise. And oftentimes, the older ones among us look at that and they go, yeah, I remember the way it was. I remember... The glory days. That's why the older men were weeping here. Because they remembered the glory of Solomon. And they saw something that the young people didn't see. They saw this foundation. And it was discouraging because it was not as great as the original temple. And they thought to themselves, Where have we fallen? How far have we gone? From those wonderful days... When the temple was great and Judah was great and we had a presence in the land and here we are with this tiny little foundation and this tiny little second temple. But I absolutely love this. Into that weeping and praising, the Lord sends a timely word of encouragement through the prophet Haggai. Keep in mind, by the way, there were three primary prophets active in these days. Three men, and there are three books. In fact, they're the last three books of the Hebrew Scriptures. They're placed there because they're compartmentalized with the minor prophets. But truly what's going on is right as we're studying Ezra and Nehemiah, these three men, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, these three men were prophesying in this day. So we will be referencing them quite a bit over the next few weeks. But the Lord spoke through Haggai to the people, encouraging them, saying in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, "...who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory?" And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? See, God knows what's going on. And He says, But take courage now, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Yeshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Now listen to this. He says, For I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. Please take note of that verse. Haggai chapter 2, verse 4. I am with you. This is what God speaks into the discouragement of the older people and maybe even some of the excitement of the younger that may be too excited. Maybe they're getting a little ahead of themselves. Which can happen too. We can get so excited in what we're doing and what's happening that the enemy can come along and sideline us when we're not prepared. The Lord is dealing with reality here. And to those who are discouraged and those who are encouraged, He says, listen to me gang, I am with you. I'm with you. This is not Bible light. This is not a Sunday school pop answer. 
This is one of the most important truths that we as believers in Jesus Christ can cling to. I am with you. The boss is raking you over the coals. I am with you, declares the Lord. The teacher is speaking half-truths. I am with you, declares the Lord. The doctor, he confirms your worst fears. I'm with you, declares the Lord. My friends, the enemy does not like to see Christians who are active. He does not like to see people who are building for the Lord. This upsets him. And when you get discouraged or distressed, and you will, if you haven't in your faith yet, you will, he will send, the enemy that is, will send soothing messages and voices to tempt you to compromise. Oh, let me help. I see that it's hard for you. Maybe you're striving too much. Let's try this other route. Some might try to convince that God is just absent. It's a big world out there. God's probably busy in Africa right now. Some might try to convince you that God is ignoring you. Well, what kind of God would allow this to happen in your life? If He's really God? Some will go further. And they will try to say God is non-existent. When that happens, please remember these words. I am with you. You see, the Lord anticipates. Through the prophet Haggai, the Lord gives a promise greater than His presence at that time. Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 goes on and says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. What? This, this little foundation that doesn't even compare? How, how is it possibly going to be greater than it was? That's what God declares through the prophet. It will be greater. In this place I will give peace, said the Lord of hosts. In chapter 7 of Haggai chapter 2 verse 7, He says, I will shake all the nations. And he says this, love it. Listen, the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. What's he talking about? Jesus Christ. Because it is in the second temple that Jesus will walk. It is in the second temple that Jesus himself will speak and teach and bring truth. And so the second temple would be greater even than the first. You see, the first temple, it saw the Shekinah glory of God, but the second temple saw the Son of God. And the Lord says, I am with you, and I am going to do greater things. And indeed, the desire of nations did come in the person of Jesus. And by the way, what was the last thing Jesus said before He ascended to heaven? Do you remember? Lo, I am with you always. To the very end of the age. I am with you. I am with you. You are not alone in your faith. You are not alone in standing strong. You are not alone when the enemy comes against you, whether surreptitiously or head to head. You are not alone. I am with you, declares the Lord. And it doesn't matter how bad it gets, how frightening, how upsetting, how difficult. I am with you. Brothers and sisters, we've got to grasp this vital truth. Today, in real time, because there's another longer term truth that's coming. Longer term believers know this as well. The moment there's even a hint that you are on the verge of moving for the Lord or doing something for the Lord, He will send from the camp of of the enemy. He will quickly dispatch to discourage. He will send a discourager. He will try to undermine what's going on, which is exactly what happens here to the Jews as they go back to rebuild. Now again, the key players in this story... Our Ezra, or not Ezra, our Zerubbabel the prince, 
and Yeshua the priest. And the Lord gives another prophetic vision, this time to Zechariah, and it's stunning. I'll read it to you here. It's a behind-the-scenes look at what's really going on. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. The prophet says, He showed me Yeshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. <laughs> That's what was really happening. And we see people of the land coming and, and standing up and going head to head with Israel, but what was really going on was Satan himself was in the accusation business. It's what he does. Zechariah 3 2 says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What does that mean? It means, Is not Israel a brand plucked from the fire? You will not destroy my city. You will not destroy my people. I think it's wonderful that God through Zechariah opens the eyes of the people, opens the eyes of Zerubbabel, opens the eyes of Yeshua the priest and says, look, this is what's happening here. There is a spiritual battle going on. Don't get stuck in the physical such that you miss what's happening spiritually. And if you're, a, if you're a person of faith, you are engaged in a spiritual battle. And that means when the tough stuff hits, we've got to pause, step back, and go, wait a minute, this is not a flesh thing. This is not about my body or, or my mind. This is about the spirit. This is about the spiritual realm and what's happening. And there is a battle raging. And if you intend to do anything for Jesus, and it may be as simple as teaching Sunday school, the enemy is going to try to discourage because he has a battle he wants to win. That's the behind the scenes. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know that lions will sleep on average 20 hours a day. Oh, to be a lion. <laughs> to spend your time just lying around, you know? I mean, sorry. Should I pause and let you take that one in? Sorry, I'm just trying to get the main point here. Seriously, when a lion, when a lion wakes up, though he may sleep for 20 hours at a time, or 20 hours through the day, when he wakes up, instantly he is hungry. It's the most dangerous time to be a lion when he's, to be around a lion when he's just awakened from sleep. You don't want to be with after he's had his meal, then it's okay, you know. Even then, be careful. But if you're going to be around a lion, I don't know who's going to. But this is what Satan is like, gang. He, he, he you know what wakes him up? The sound that wakes him up is the sound of building. It's when believers begin to work. When they begin to move, when something stirs up, then Satan goes, wait a minute, somebody needs to go down and discourage that. We need to try and stop that. Oh, be careful, they're, they're, they're building a church. Oh, look out, she's growing, growing in faith. Oh, that guy, he may do something. We've got to discourage him now. Send someone, dispatch someone, cause a problem. Let's have an issue. Let's stir it up. That's how Satan, who Peter refers to as a lion, that's how he functions. It might not feel like an attack. Not at first. I mean, lions are awfully cute-looking creatures, aren't they? We were on the jungle boat cruise, my parents and I, at Disneyland a week or so ago. And we came around the corner, and you may have seen it, but there's a scene where there's a pride of lions. And, and it was so sweet, because they're all huddled around this, this sleeping zebra, you know, and they're protecting it while it sleeps. I thought it was really nice of them, because they're all right there around 
looked like they were doing a good thing. That's what the that's what the guide said, and I trusted him. You know, it's the Disneyland guy. Okay. Anyway, we're we're there, and <clears throat> this is what happens though. Sometimes those cute, cuddly, fluffy lions just don't look very dangerous. They're just there, you know, trying to help. Well, what happens here? It says the enemies, so we know who they are. But we might not have known if it didn't say that. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. Verse 2, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's households and said to them, Let's build, let us build with you. Let's do what you're doing. Let us build with you, for we like you seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Asar Haddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. It doesn't seem like, it doesn't sound like an attack at all. We're here to build with you. Let's do this together. And we've been in the land, and we've been sacrificing to God too for a long, long time now. But make no mistake about it, these are enemies. They are enemies. Who are these enemies? Who who are these people who are now in the land? Well, you have to go back 136 years earlier. In 722 B.C., you Bible students know that's when Assyria finally deported northern Israel, the ten northern kingdoms. Took them out of the land. Took them away. But when they deported, they also imported, which was actually a wise move for conquering nations in the time. You take out the people who would be a problem, who would continue to try and fight against you, and then you import people from another culture you've already conquered, put them in the land, and then you're okay because there's no loyalty there. They're not clinging to the land. They've just been moved there. They are now uh, a vassal state. And this is what Assyria did. He brought in these outsiders from all over Mesopotamia, from places they had conquered, and settled them there in Israel. And those people were there. And it's an interesting story. In fact, let me just read it to you. 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 24 gives us the history, the background of, of these very people. It tells us in verse 24, 2 Kings, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuthah and from Avah and from Hamat and Sephavarim and settled them in the cities of Samaria and the places of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria, do not know the custom of the God of the land. And so he sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. See how pagan the thinking is here? There's a God in this land that's upset, so we've got to appease this God. Well, the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Well, take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But watch this. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkot Benat, and the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamat made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites, they burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. And they also feared the Lord. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> they, they added him into the multiplicity of gods. They also feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom 
of the... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse there. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. Get this, these are priests to God Most High. Priests to Yahweh, who they're sticking now in the high places along with priests to these other gods. And verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations and from among whom they had also been carried away into exile. There is a phrase for this and it's very popular in America today and it is religious syncretism. Religious syncretism is an amalgamation, a combination of different forms of religious beliefs or practice. I'll take some of this and a few of these and some fries with that and maybe a shake would be nice and 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 an ice cream dessert. It is fast food religion and it is what we see in America today. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but i got to check my horoscope. I, I'm a believer in Jesus, absolutely. Um, but I, I have some friends that are into Eastern mysticism. And man, I'll tell you what, we get into some meditation stuff going on there and it's really cool. Religious syncretism. Mixing things that are not to be mixed. Trying to harmonize and unite without critical examination, without discernment, without any kind of logical or spiritual unity. You know who these people are. By the time Jesus comes along, they're the Samaritans. That's why the Jews hated them so much. They were religious syncretists. They mixed it all together. They were considered half-breeds because there were Jewish people that were still living there in the land. And as these people were brought in from Mesopotamia, they just kind of all mixed and married and intermingled and became a new people group, the Samaritans. The Samaritans were avoided by the Jews for three reasons. Physically, because they were multicultural. They were not pure Jews. They were not just one nation or one race of people. They were a blend, physically. Religiously, they were syncretistic. Again, professing a hybrid of all kinds of different beliefs. Historically, they were enemies of Israel, as we see in Ezra. Physically multicultural, religiously syncretistic, historically enemies of Israel. Does that not start to sound like America today physically we are multicultural which is by the way wonderful my family's multicultural I think it's great fantastic we should be we want to be an open and accepting and a loving people religiously however gone are the days of the Judeo-Christian ethic that one time this country was founded on and we are historically well historically we've always been a friend of Israel how are we doing right now? We see even that beginning to turn. We're going to have to watch and see over the next few months how things play out between our government and, and Israel and the Palestinians and Iran to know if we are Israel's friend anymore. We talked about that, by the way, at length Wednesday night with some things that are going on right now. If you want a little more intel and some prophecy about what's happening, you might go back and listen to that when we discussed Wednesday. Now I said when the enemy attacks, his first volley may not feel like an attack. And as we see in these first couple of verses, you might wonder, why are these people even called enemies? I mean, what's the problem? All they want to do is help out. That's what they're saying. Let me help you. Let us build with you. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building the house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Their attitude is reflected in Paul's admonition 
2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see, Zerubbabel and Yeshua had some discernment. They recognized what would have happened. Man, if we bring in these religious syncretists, what's the temple going to end up looking like? They're going to want their way. They're going to want to add things to this. But what's wrong with a little compromise? I mean, come on. They, they could use the labor, couldn't they? Wouldn't you like us to help you, say the Samaritans? Gang, the Samaritans claim the same guy, but the leaders of Israel know better. They know what's coming. It is infiltration. It's subversion. It's compromise. Psalm 50 verse 16 says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Immediately, the Samaritans strike their colors as enemies. Verse 4 tells us the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Notice the approach of these adversaries. It's informative for us today. They come and first try to undermine from within syncretism, compromise. When that's denied, they attack from without with terrorism and frustration and discouragement. And that Hebrew word discouragement is interesting to me. It's rafayad. Rafayad literally weakening the hands. That's, that's what discouragement is, isn't it? When someone weakens your hands to do what the Lord has called you to do. No, oh. You don't want to waste all that extra time staying a whole extra service Sunday to help in kids' ministry. You don't want to waste all that extra time being involved in a building. You don't want to waste your money or your effort on that church thing. There's so many other great things to do. And the hands start to get a little weak to the service and the work of the Lord. And we have our times where we really grasp hold of the Word and we cling to the Lord, but the enemy whispers and discourages and begins to relax our hands and loosen our hands and weaken our hands until we begin to question. And as we question, we're not holding on so tight anymore. As we wonder if there's really any truth here at all. Verse 24 at the end of chapter 4 says, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And we'll <clears throat> talk about how that came about. Ultimately, it's, it's very interesting. There's a pause. <laughs> they get a cease and desist order. And they have to stop meeting. And they have to stop building the temple. And that's the rest of the chapter we'll come back to Wednesday night. But you read this and you think, wouldn't it have just, it'd have just been easier to compromise with the Samaritans? You know? we bring them into what we're doing and involve them in what we're doing, we can continue doing what we're doing. Common sense would say diplomacy is the key. Let's find common ground. Let's let's work together. Let's begin with where we agree and let's set aside our areas of disagreement. And that all sounds so good, but I ask you to show me where does the Lord call us to be diplomatic? Where in Scripture are we told... To give in 
to compromise, to lower the standard so it's okay for everybody to be involved. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to the world and lower the standard. He raised it. Oh, what about grace? Grace raises the standard, my friends. Because you recognize how far God went to save you. It doesn't make you want to do less for Him. It draws you to more. There is no discussion. No deliberation. No voting as to which way to go, which road to take. There is no low road, only the high one. One voice, one absolute ruler, one benevolent authoritarian demanding to be obeyed. Compromise is the language of the devil. Okay. So how do we defend against it? Because I don't want to be seen as intolerant. How do I learn as a follower of Jesus to speak the truth in love? To stand on truth and not to compromise. To know what's real and cling to it. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul is speaking to the people in the church of Ephesus. He's about to leave that church. He's been with them three years preaching the gospel, teaching them, feeding them, encouraging them, and now he's got to go. And he says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves, not lions this time, but wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves, Paul warns. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, False prophets also arose among the people, Peter said. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. But Peter says many will follow their sensuality. And that sensuality, gang, is not sexuality. He's not talking about a perversion there. He says many will follow their sensuality. In other words, the teaching of these false prophets, false teachers will be attractive will be something that you like the sound of it. That you want to do. You want to be involved with. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Jesus said in Matthew 24.10, At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And as with all other prophecy, gang, this is not what might happen. This is what will happen. This is what is happening. This is a component, a key aspect of the last days of the church that many will fall away. Now, I'm not saying that to discourage or to make paranoid, but to prepare and to open our eyes. As the end approaches false teaching will be on the rise. So, how do we deal with it? How do we keep from compromising? Let me give you four things to jot down very quickly. Four simple strategies, and I think they're straight out of the text this morning. Number one, lean not on your own understanding. Let me tell you something that I I, I try to do on an ongoing basis. I try not to assume I immediately know the answer. I try not to assume or not to lean on what I think is right I try to go directly back to the Lord, back to the Scripture. 
Lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, five says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Had Zerubbabel and Yeshua trusted their instincts, they might have compromised with their adversaries. It's what I probably would have done if I was leaning on my understanding. These guys come up, they're strong, they surround us in the land, and they're saying they want to help us. Yeah, well, they worship idols. I know, but they worship God too. Can't we at least use a little help here? Let's play nice. And I might have made that decision and it would be wrong to do so. Oh, they would have become numerically stronger but spiritually weaker. Our students sit in classrooms and they hear bright, articulate, erudite teachers like Jim. But unlike Jim espousing all kinds of things that our students know in their hearts are not true. But the teacher's so funny and, and so popular among students. And some of that drivel begins to make sense. But, but he said this. And he's such a nice guy. Why would he not tell me what's true? But she said this. And she really seems to know what she's talking about. Or even more subversive, false prophets come along teaching all kinds of things in the church. And if we are not leaning on the Lord, we'll miss it. Things, even sometimes we feel like, ah, it's kind of on the heretical line there, (laughs) but the signs and wonders that this guy is producing are hard to dismiss. Look at what he's doing. And so how do we not compromise? Well, number one, lean not on your own understanding, but number two, very, very important in these days, look for the fruit. Look for the fruit. Don't just listen to the words. Look for the fruit. Zerubbabel and Yeshua knew what the fruit was of the Samaritans. They knew what was going on. Which is why they couldn't compromise. They knew these guys were still offering to these false gods. Look for the fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Listen, if they're in sheep's clothing, that means they look like sheep. They look like church people. They sound like Christian teachers. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Well, Jesus, if they seem harmless as a sheep or if they're dressed like us and look like us, how do we know? Fruit. Jesus says in Matthew 7.16, You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So then he says in verse 20, you will know them by their fruit. So what is he saying? We need to be fruit inspectors. We need to, with any teacher, with anyone who comes along and claims to be a prophet in the church today, we need to say, what does their life show? Not even necessarily their ministry. What does their life show? What's the fruit? Look at the fruit. My friends... Most bad fruit is easy to spot. However, sometimes you bite into an apple and it's brown on the inside and the little worm comes wiggling out and you didn't know until you bit into it what you were getting into. The adversary's been at this for some time now. He has had millennia to perfect 
his costume. Second Corinthians 11.14, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. But there's something else, gang, that we need here. Yeah, we need to lean not on our own understanding. We need to look for the fruit. But there's something else that is absolutely critical in this day we must have. Haggai chapter 2 verse 4, the Lord says, Take courage, Zerubbabel. Take courage, Yeshua, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage and work, for I am with you. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, listen to this, he says, My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Listen to the spirit of truth. Why, why is there such a focus on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in these last days? Well, the Bible indicates that's exactly what is going on, what will go on, what, what we should see and be experiencing now. The outpouring of the Spirit. Why do we need this, the Spirit so desperately in these last days? Because we're not going to get it on our own. We may lean not on our own understanding and we may be looking for fruit and trying to be discerning, but unless we have the Holy Spirit of the living God teaching us, moving with us, and speaking to us, we're still going to get deceived. Listen to the Spirit of Truth. By the way, that's Jesus' name for the Holy Spirit. Three times. John 14.17, John 15.26, John 16.13. Jesus calls Him the Spirit of Truth. Now, I want His Spirit in my life. And I want His Spirit because... And I could get all, we won't do a whole teaching on the Holy Spirit this morning, but He is helper and He is encourager and He brings to mind all the things that Jesus taught and He glorifies Jesus and on and on and on. But He also is the Spirit of truth. And will bring discernment so that we might see and know this is true and this is not. In all the years I did youth ministry, I would have students from time to time come to me and say, I just don't know how to bat. I'm just not sure what, what is right and wrong. And, and the first question out of my mouth, have you prayed about it? Have you asked God to give you discernment? Now, Hannah and I have had this conversation. She's in a world religions class in the public high school right now. <laughs> you can imagine the look on my face when she said, yeah, I signed up for what is history of world religions or what is it? Honors contemporary issues and religions. Contemporary issues, honors contemporary issues and religions. Flowery. <laughs> Sounds great. And this teacher has got to have all this stuff together, right? Is he even a Christian? Just curious. No. So she tells me she's taking this class, and I just go, or like you're not getting enough at home. Is that the problem? That you need to go to the public school? We had a great conversation and talked about truth and she knows this year the radar is up for everything that's said but I'm telling you Hannah you're not going to catch it all unless the spirit is at work in you we will not catch it all unless we are accepting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts oh by the way that's Zechariah 4.6 and the rest of the verse is <laughs> then he said to me this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel This is the context of God saying, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit you will build. By my Spirit you will detect what's going on around you. By my Spirit, Zerubbabel, you will lead this people. And that is what Zerubbabel and Yeshua did in calling out the adversaries for who they were. They were listening to the Spirit. They didn't just see the fruit for what it was. They weren't just avoiding their own understanding. They were listening to the Holy Spirit of the living God. Where do you get that? How do you know they were doing Holy Spirit listening? 
Well, we read about it in Zechariah 4.14 where the Lord calls Him His anointed ones, or literally, I love this, His sons of fresh oil. Sons of fresh oil. My friends, if we are to discern against compromise in these last days, we need to be sons and daughters of fresh oil. How do you keep the oil fresh? You go back again and again and again to the Spirit of the living God and you say, Holy Spirit, I need you here. Spirit of Christ Jesus, show me truth. Jesus, pour out your Spirit on my heart and my life so I can walk in your truth. Sons and daughters of fresh oil. I think we're going to talk about that more tonight. I, now I don't, I'm not trying to set the agenda for this evening. But I have a feeling we need to have a conversation about what that looks like. And so if you come back to the First Fruits Worship and Prayer, we're going to talk a little more about being people of fresh oil and how do we, how do we get more? How do we receive more of the oil of the Holy Spirit? One last thing we need to be doing as discerning, non-compromising people in these last days, number four, and the first one, lean not on your own understanding. And secondly, what is the second one? I've already forgotten. Look for the fruit. Look for the fruit. Thirdly, listen to the spirit of truth. Number four, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Time went by. And unfortunately, Israel not only remained firm in non-compromise with the Samaritans, they came to hate them. We don't want to do that. As we refuse to compromise, our compassion needs to increase in this world. We need to look at, even like the teacher in, in Hannah's classroom, I as a, as a father, but also as a Christian, need to look at this man and say, he needs Jesus. That's the issue. So don't compromise, daughter, but be sure you show compassion as you function in that scene. Well, one day, centuries later, an itinerant rabbi named Jesus had to pass through Samaria. The Bible tells us, John 4, verse 4. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So noon, Jesus sits down, and you know the story. Along comes a woman. She's been married and divorced five times. Now she's just living with a guy. Her life is a broken heap of mess. She's showing up at the well at 12 noon. Why at noon? Well, probably because that wasn't when most of the women went. In the heat of day, she could just go, get her water, avoid the gossip, and go home. And Jesus is there. And what's amazing to me is that in this converting conversation that changes her life, and ultimately as she runs back to the city, it changes the city. It changes the lives of those people. Suddenly, for the first time, there is real hope. But what did Jesus say about the Samaritans as they came out of the city? He is now talking with his apostles. The woman's gone back to the city. And now a whole gang of the Samaritans are coming up over the hill to the well to see Jesus there. And what does Jesus say? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields that they are white for harvest. He's not even talking about Israel. He's talking about Samaria. He's talking about the picture of the world. It was there, an enemy, outside or half-breed territory, that Jesus Christ first reveals that He is Messiah. And that's what we need to do. As discerning people, non-compromising, we have to be ultra-compassionate. 
let's talk about Jesus. If you're feeling a little frayed around the edges of your faith, if you find yourself waffling, if you find yourself ready to give in to compromise, first thing you've got to do is run back to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Think about Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Talk about Him. That alone is the most encouraging thing you can do in your life. But be a person who speaks of Jesus to the world round about. And remember, remember, He's the one who said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank You for this promise. This great truth. I am comforted, Lord, because I believe we have seen You give us everything we need to stand firm in these last days. A truth that we can grasp and hold on to. Your Spirit poured out that we might be wise and discerning. Even practical, tangible things such as looking for fruit in the lives of people who would teach or try to lead us one way or the other. But in all of this, Lord, it comes back to once again we are back at Your feet, Jesus. And we are before You. And Jesus, You said, You said, I am with You always. I need to pray that right now for our fellowship. and for There are some individuals here who I will not name. I don't want to embarrass them, but there are some individuals here who are here right now this morning who need to hear You say this, Jesus. I'm with You. I am with You in this. And Father, there's no amount of pain in our lives or fear or challenge or threat where You say, I'm going to go away for a while and come back later. I am with You. Jesus, if I didn't know this to be true, I don't think I could have stood over the years. In fact, I know I could not. Holy Spirit, would You breathe the words of Jesus into our hearts this morning. I am with You. I am with You. I am with You. And may we walk wise, uncompromising, and compassionate as we follow after You. In Jesus' name, Amen.